We thank you, Father, for this day in which we remember the independence, uh, declaration of independence in this country that occurred over 200 years ago. We're thankful for the freedom that we've had over these past 220 plus years. We're thankful that as a result, the gospel has been freely proclaimed in this country and that this country has become a fountainhead for missionary activity in other parts of the world. And yet, Lord, we know that we cannot take our freedom for granted, and we know that the enemy is at work trying to destroy this country and its freedom and, and definitely trying to destroy the work of the church. And so, Father, we pray against him, and we pray that you will help us to be vigilant in prayer and as citizens of this country in standing up for what is right and what is good and what is truly uh, the foundation of our freedom. Lord, we pray that you will bless us here today as we study from the book of Judges. Guide our thoughts and our understanding and pray that the name of God will be exalted and uplifted. We ask that you will bless the proclamation of your word uh, throughout this property this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I would like uh, this morning for us to read from the first chapter of the book of Judges, beginning at the first verse. Judges 1.1. Now it came about after the, the death of Joshua that the sons of Israel inquired of the Lord, saying, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Then Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I in turn will go with you into the territory allotted to you. And Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands, and they defeated 10,000 men at Bezek. And they found Adonai Bezek in Bezek, and fought against him, and they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. But Adonai Bezek fled, and they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his toes, big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to gather up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. So they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. Well, as we look at this introductory passage to the book of Judges, you'll notice that it says there in the first verse that it came about after the death of Joshua. Now, scholars debate about what exactly that means here because of some of the things which are said in the first couple of chapters of the book of Judges. There are those who say that the phrase refers to all of the book of Judges except for the first chapter. According to them, the events of the first chapter were events that took place during the time of Joshua and are simply being recapitulated here in greater detail than they had been in the book of Joshua. However, other scholars, I think, more rightly believe that the events here occur after the death of Joshua, which is what it says there in the first verse, that Joshua had conquered the land and that it had been allocated. But here you're looking at details of events that transpired in the attempt to more fully acquire the land. Because we know through our study of the book of Joshua that when the book of Joshua ended, Israel had conquered Canaan, but they were not in full possession of it. There were pockets of Canaanites all over the place. I mean, almost like chicken pox on the skin of a child, you know. Here were pockets of Canaanites everywhere. And they had not all been eliminated. And so we are looking here in this particular passage at the attempt 
of the Israelites to begin to eliminate the, some of the remaining pockets of Canaanites still living in the tribal allotments. Now the question is asked, why was it necessary for Israel to go to the Lord and to say, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? Why was there a need for order or some particular order here? Well, no one really knows for sure. But one of the things that is interesting here is that if you go back to the 49th chapter of Genesis, you'll discover that Jacob, in his uh, prophecy blessing that he gave to his 12 sons, said of Judah that he would be the one who would receive primacy, that he would be the tribe of the kings, that he would rule until Shiloh came. And so many feel that this is a reference to that. The first to go up and the first to begin the completion of the conquest would be Judah. Not because Judah was the first son of, Ju of uh, Jacob, he was not. He was the fourth son. Uh, but because of, if you remember back in the book of Genesis, things which he had done, which demonstrated a character that was above that of virtually all of the other sons except probably Joseph. It's possible here that the goal was that there needed to be a sequential operation in the land so that you could have the co proper concentration of forces at the necessary point of time. So Judah would begin their conquest, other tribes might join in, even though it's not specifically spelled out here that that was so. What is important is this, that Israel sought the Lord. That is what is important in the first verse, where it says, the sons of Israel inquired of the Lord. They went to God and they said, what shall we do? That demonstrates the influence of Joshua and of the elders that were still committed to God under Joshua at this time. So we know it was right around the time of the death of Joshua or shortly thereafter. Now the Lord responds. How does the Lord respond? It doesn't say. It just says he says, or the Lord's saying, that the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. How did he do that? How did he respond? Joshua is dead. Did he speak verbally? Did he speak possibly through Phineas, the high priest? Very possible that that's what he did. Did he speak through Urim and Thummim? Very possible too. We don't know. Obviously, that is not important to us. How does the Lord speak to you? How does the Lord speak to me? Well, definitely we don't use Urim and Thummim, I don't think. At least I don't. The Lord normally speaks to us through the book, through the word. He can speak to us other ways, but we have a sense of his speaking. I think for them it was more than a sense. It was a very definite thing that came to Israel through the Lord. So Judah was commanded to go up and clear the Canaanites out of its allotment. Now, it was very natural. You read in this passage that it says, Judah said to Simeon, his brother. Now, this is putting it as if it were one person speaking to one person. It is not, of course. It's the tribal leaders of Judah speaking to the tribal leaders of the tribe of Simeon, saying, come up with me into the territory that we may fight, and then we will go with you. So there's a cooperation here between Judah and Simeon. Why? Well, if you look at this map, of the tribal allotments that we looked at when we were doing Joshua itself. If you notice very down, way down the south, you'll find that the territorial allotment of Judah is this large portion in the south, and in the southern part of it is the allotment of Simeon. It has no defined borders. Simeon lived within the tribal allotment of Judah. 
And if you go back to, to Joshua, you will discover that it doesn't say Simeon's borders went from here to here to here to here because Simeon simply lived within the tribe of Judah. And so it was natural for these two to cooperate together. Now, Simeon and, uh, and Judah were very close tribes because they both had the same mother and the same father, which is very interesting. I mean, they were brothers originally. And so here they are together and they're cooperating in the conquest of their tribal territory. We're told that the Lord went with them, says in verse 4, well, verse 3 at the end, he says, and I in turn, well, that's referring to Judah and Simeon. Verse 4, Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanite and the Perizzites into their hands. So the Lord was with them. The Lord responded, this is what I want you to do. They did it and God was with them wonderful act of listening and obeying and God-fulfilling. This is the way it should have been throughout the book of Judges. It is not, of course, as you know and as we will highlight as we look through the book. They defeated a force of 10,000 Canaanites and Perizzites. Now again, remembering that within the land of Canaan, there were numerous different tribal groups who were often grouped together under the simple rubric Canaanite. Sometimes they referred to as Amorites. To try to distinguish Canaanites and Amorites was very difficult, although there are some distinct differences between them. But the terms tended to overlap as we study in the book of Joshua and in the book of Judges. So these two peoples who are more or less allied together are led by a king by the name of Adonai Bezik, which is a very interesting name. Because one of the names of the Lord in the Old Testament is Adonai. Well, the name Adonai means prince or, or Lord. And so we're looking at an individual whose name was Adonai Bezik or Bezik, meaning prince of Bezik. The battle occurred at Bezik. The question is, where is Bezik? And the answer is, nobody knows. God knows, but he's not telling us. There is only one other place in scripture where Bezik is mentioned. And this is not believed to be the same Bezik because the Bezik mentioned in uh, Samuel is way up here. You see the tribal area of Manasseh? It's way up in this northeast corner of Manasseh's territory. Not that it's impossible for Judah and Simeon to have gone up there to fight, but since the passage tells of their conquest being in the tribal area of Judah, it doesn't make sense that they should be way up there. Now, one of the things you discover as you read through the Old Testament is names are often repeated in many different places. Many towns in the uh, land of Canaan and in the greater area bore the same name as one another. The word Bezik comes from a Hebrew word that mean, ref, basically refers to lightning. And, and, and so, you know, of course, we probably wouldn't name a town lightning. But uh, in, in the Old Testament, particularly amongst the pagan Canaanites, they named often places for natural phenomenon that they couldn't understand, which was thought to be related to the gods. And so it's very probable that we're talking about a place that was in the territory of Judah, but is unknown today as ter in terms of its location. Now, they defeated these 10,000 men. We're not you know, given any details, except simply that they were defeated. Now, Israel, if you remember studying through the book of Joshua, you don't find very many references to Israel practicing mutilation on people. 
And they captured the king of uh, Bezek, Adonai Bezek, and they cut off his thumbs and they cut off his big toes. Why in the world did they do that? Why, why would they practice mutilation? This was not something that Jew Israel normally did. But the passage seems to explain why it happened in verse 7. Because he said, the king, Adonai Bezek, says, 70 kings with their thumb and with their big toes cut off used to gather up scraps under my table. In other words, he had done this. He claims to 70. Apparently Israel knew of this. And therefore, to show him what he deserved, they did to him what he had done to those that he had defeated. A dose of his own medicine. He apparently acknowledges this. Because you'll notice he says there, as I have done, so God has repaid me. He is saying, the God of Israel has done this to me because this was a vile act that I perpetrated on those that I had captured. Now, what's the point of this? What, what would be the point of cutting somebody's thumbs and toes off, big toes? Well, if you remember through our study of the book of Joshua, almost in every instance, as the Israelites fought against the Canaanite nations, the nation's national armies were led by the kings. The kings weren't the kind who sat in their palaces and said, all right, you guys go out there and fight the enemy. They actually led their own forces. They were warrior kings, very common amongst the Canaanite peoples. And so what good is a warrior without his thumbs and his big toes? Pretty ineffective. Most of us have a hard time at certain times standing very properly with our big toes, but you can imagine without them. And then without your thumbs, it's very difficult to wield weapons. And as a result, uh, he was rendered unfit to be king. And this was, of course, God ultimately humiliating this man. Scripture tells us, the Lord tells us that uh, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? If by losing his toes and his thumbs he could be rendered humble and then could acknowledge God? Is this an acknowledgement where he says, as I have done, so God has repaid me? It is an acknowledgement of sort. Is it one that leads to repentance? Scripture does not say. What we do know here, though, is it says that they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. Jerusalem. Hmm. What is interesting is that in the seventh verse of the first chapter of Judges, if we look at it chronologically, Israel does not possess Jerusalem. So there are two options here as to what the meaning of this phrase or this sentence is. The first is that after they had done this to him, they turned him back over to his own people and they took him up to Jerusalem where he was into forced retirement and ultimately died. But if you go on to the next passage, you discover the very next passage tells us that Israel goes on to capture Jerusalem, whatever that's going to mean. We'll talk about that in a minute. And it's possible then that they took him with them as they attacked Jerusalem and that in the attack or some relationship to that, he died. Whatever the case is, this man experienced just recompense for the life which he had lived. Well, let's read on in, in the book of Judges here at the 8th verse. Then the sons of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. 
And afterward, the sons of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites living in the hill country and in the Negev and in the lowland. So Judah went up against the Canaanites who lived at Hebron. Now the name of Hebron formerly was Kiriath Arba. And they struck Shishai, Iman, and Talmai. Well, let me read on the next few verses too. Then from there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. Now the name of Debir formerly was Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, The one who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will even give him my daughter Aksa for wife, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, and he gave him his daughter Aksa for a wife. Then it came about when she came to him that she persuaded him to ask her father for a field. Then he alighted from her, she alighted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have given me the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. So Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Now what is interesting is this, in, in this passage is, of course, that quite a bit of it is a recapitulation of events which were described in the book of Joshua. It's also interesting here that several name changes occur. Back in verse 10, we're told that uh, the name of Hebron for, formerly had been Kiriath Arba. Now Hebron means league, league or alliance. And of course it refers to the days when Abraham made a league with the local Hittites and others and, and went off and fought on, on behalf of his, uh, of his nephew. But before it had been named Kiriath Arba. Kiriath basically means town or, or city. Arba is the name of a person. Arba was an Anakim, a, a member of the tribe of Anak, the race of giants, and three of his descendants are listed here in this passage. So the city of Arba, the Anakim, was what it was called before, but it was changed to Hebron because of the alliance which Abraham had made at hundreds of years before with the local people. And then you go on and you read about the uh, city named Debir that had norm formerly been called Kiriath Sefer. It's very interesting here, the change of name, because Kiriath Sefer means the city of the writing or of the scroll. And we have no idea what scroll is being referred to here. But apparently there was a writing, a famous writing here at this city, or had been made at this city. And so it was called the city of the writing. It was changed to Debir, which means the place of speaking, for whatever reason. We don't know. But it's interesting that it was changed from a, the city of the writing to a place of speaking. And the scripture doesn't give us the background as to why the name change occurred. Now, going back to the book of Judges, we discover that the king of Jerusalem and his army had been destroyed in southern Canaan by the armies led by Joshua. You remember they fought all the way down through the Shephelah into the southern part of Canaan. They captured the kings and they killed all the kings including the king of Jerusalem and the armies had been wiped out except for a few men who escaped. But what we find as you read through the book of Joshua is that the city of Jerusalem never fell to Israel during the time of Joshua's life. In spite of the fact its king had been killed, its army had been decimated, the city held out against the Israelites during the time of Joshua. So here we have, seemingly post-Joshua, an attack by the sons of Judah against Jerusalem. 
Now, because as you read on in the book of Judges and into Samuel, you'll constantly discover that Jerusalem is in the hands of the Jebusites. We have to understand this passage in one of two ways. We have to understand this passage where it says that Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set it on fire as referring to the capture of the outlying areas around the Ophel, which was the, um, the citadel, the heart of the city of Jerusalem, capturing the outer areas but failing to capture that. The scripture doesn't say that, but that's a possibility. The other possibility is, yes, they captured the whole city, they burned it, but the Jebusites were right back in it and, and re-established it, re-fortified it, and held, it, <coughs> held on to it for another quarter of a millennium. Scripture doesn't explain which of those two possibilities occurred. Uh, if, if you go with the city being captured and struck with the edge of the sword as, as a total thing, then obviously the city was recaptured by the Jebusites from the surrounding area who, who had been driven out and was refortified. All we know is that when David attacked Jerusalem, it was still held by Jebusites. And David doesn't come for another 250, 300 years from the time we're talking about here. City of Jerusalem, Jebus as it was sometimes called, would remain an unassimilated center of paganism throughout the period of the judges. Verse 9 of this passage tells us of a kind of a mop-up campaign that Judah carries out. They attacked the remaining Canaanite enclaves in the Judean highlands and then they went down into the Negev in the south and, and then they moved over to the Shephelah over on the east, west, I'm sorry. So if you look at this particular map which gives you the physical breakdown of the land, you will discover that the hill country of Judah, this is the high country. This is the heartland of what will become the tribe of Judah, territory of the tribe of Judah, what will later be known as Judea in the New Testament times. Uh, to the east of that, what is known as Jeshimon, is largely the wilderness of Judea. Yes, it belongs to Judah, but it's very dry, uh, rolling hills. It's where David raised sheep and, and, and did his thing as a young man. To the west, you'll notice, is what is known as the Shephelah. The Shephelah is the foothill region between the coastal plain, where you see the Philistine plain, and the highland of Judea. It's kind of a low rolling hills with valleys in between before you actually move up into the Judean highlands itself. So there's a definite transition from the coastal plain, which is about 10 miles wide, to the Shephelah, this, uh, these rolling hills with the very distinct valleys in between, valleys through which you have routes, easy, easy movement through there, which is slightly narrower, and then into the Judean highlands, which are definitely highlands. Uh, we're talking about two and 3,000 feet uh, above sea level in, in the Judean highlands. And then you're sloping back down towards the Dead Sea in the Jeshimon, which is a very dry, rolling area. Now in the south, you see the Negev. The word Negev simply means the south. It is a steppe land. It's the region around Beersheba. Beersheba is a, is a fairly good-sized city today in southern Israel, a city of about 50,000 today. But the well of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is still identifiable there. In, not in the old city, but I mean not in the new city, but in the ruins of the old city. And it's down here in this Negev. The Negev is an area where herds can 
can uh, be maintained because there's enough precipitation to maintain grass, but agriculture is a little more difficult. And then as you go further south, you walk off into the wilderness of Zin, and the wilderness of Zin looks like the Mojave, or even worse, looks like Death Valley. I mean, it's a very, very dry, forbidding area. So Israel conquered in the high country, in the Shephelah, and that is Judah did, and in the Negev region. Now verses 10 through 15 that we read of this passage are a repeat of Joshua chapter 15. Now we won't go back and read Joshua chapter 15 because it reads almost identical to this. And if you were with us through Joshua, you may remember saying, well, that sounds familiar. <laughs> and that's because it was an event which transpired considerably before this time. This is why some scholars believe that the first chapter is exempted from the first verse, where it says it came about after the death of Joshua, because these events did not occur after the uh, death of Joshua. They occurred during the time of Joshua, we believe, because they are recorded in the book of Joshua. And if Joshua is the author of the book of Joshua, he probably wrote about things that had happened while he was alive, most likely. And, and so why is this repeated here? Why do we have the story of Caleb conquering Hebron and Debir and uh, his nephew Othniel being the man who actually effected the conquest and defeated these three great giants that were still living in the area? The writer obviously felt that the heroism of Caleb and of Othniel needed to be reiterated here within the context of the book of Judges, particularly because as we move into the next chapter or so, we discover that Othniel becomes the first of the Shofatim, the first of the deliverers. And so this sets the context for Othniel. Why should Othniel be the man who rises up as the first, quote, judge and leads Israel? Well, because he's this great he hero, he is a nephew and son-in-law of the great Caleb. What better credentials could you have? as a man to serve as Israel's first Shofat. Verse 16 of Judges 1. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up from the city of Palms with the sons of Judah to the wilderness of Judah, which is in the south of Arad. And they went and lived with the people. Then Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they struck the Canaanites living in Zephath, and utterly destroyed, this, destroyed it. So the name of the city was Hormah. And Judah took Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. Now the Lord was with Judah, and they took possession of the hill country, but they did not drive out the inhabitants of the valley, literally the Shephelah, because they had iron chariots. Then they gave Hebron to Caleb, as Moses had promised, and he drove out from there the three sons of Anak. But the sons of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the sons of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. And the book of Judges was written two or three hundred years later. This passage begins with an account of an allied tribe known as the Kenites. Now, If you go clear back to the book of Exodus and you study the tribe, the tribes of Israel leading, leaving Egypt, you will discover every once in a while there's a passage which implies that Israel left along with other peoples. In other words, when Israel left under the leadership of Moses, apparently there were some other people living in Egypt who said, 
this is our ticket. And they jumped on the bandwagon and went out with Israel. In fact, later when they were worshiping the golden calf and talking about going back, the scripture says that these rabble, these other people, were in the forefront of stirring up rebellion against God. Well, one of the allied tribes that was not in the Exodus but later joins up with Israel is the tribe of the Kenites. Moses had married a woman by the name of Zipporah. Zipporah was a Kenite. Her father was a priest in the land of Midian of the Kenite tribe. And her brother, Hobab, is mentioned in Scripture as the one Moses went to and said, Will you be our eyes in the wilderness? Do you remember that passage? He said, Will you guide us? Will you lead us? And Hobab said, No, I don't think I really want to do this. And finally, Moses prevailed upon him. And he led them from Mount Sinai to the very southern border of Canaan. In fact, to a place very close to Hormah that is mentioned in this particular passage. Now, did the Kenite tribe stay with Israel all through the wilderness wandering of the 39 or 38 years after they failed to go into Canaan? Well, we don't know. But what we know is they are now with Israel again. Did they go completely through the wilderness wandering? Maybe. Maybe they said, hey, you guys go wander while we have other things to do and we'll join you later. You know, all kinds of scenarios could be dreamed up. But whatever the case is, we're told in this passage that they were at the City of Palms. Well, City of Palms, that's the name usually given to Jericho. Now, Jericho, of course, is a ruin, has not yet been rebuilt, but they could have been living in the region of Jericho at the time. And that kind of goes along with the phrase when it says, come up. Now, we say to somebody in San Francisco, would you come up to see us? We mean come up north. Why is north up? Well, because our maps are always oriented with north at the top and south at the bottom. But up in Scripture means uphill. It doesn't mean north, south, east, west. It means uphill. If you come up, you go up a hill. You go down, you go down a hill. That's what it's talking about. And so to come up is very reasonable because Jericho is 900 feet below sea level. They'd have to come up to the Gideon Highlands and then go south past Hebron down into the, uh, to Arad and towards the Negev in the south. And so it all geographically fits together here that this is what was happening. They were invited by the tribe of Judah because they had been close allies of Judah to come and live in the southern portion of their territory. Now, I, I think what I'll do is uh, let uh, Professor Walmark uh, give to us a little account of Arad. <laughs> yes. Uh, Cold. <laughs> Desolate. Desolate, yes. <laughs> We, we have this little thing going because about nearly 20 years ago now we were together on, on one of the times when we were in Israel and uh, it was January and Arad was the most miserable place on the entire trip. <laughs> I mean that's out in the middle of absolutely nowhere and the wind was sweeping through and as you said it was foggy and cold. I mean we slept indoors in a bed with covers and all our clothes on and we were still cold. <laughs> It was not a very fun place. Uh, I used to get down to the Dead Sea the next morning. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. It's pretty warm down the Dead Sea all year round. In fact, some of the year it's pretty hot. To Arad? Yeah, it is. It's good for you. I had a 70-year-old <laughs> man with, us, with his cane, and we were leaving. I said, well, uh, Andrew, what did you think of the ruins here? We'd gotten a good lecture on just, just another bunch of stones. We'll re rearrange a little different way. <laughs> <laughs> 
said it all. Yeah. <laughs> Not basically an archaeologist at heart. <laughs> Just another pile of rocks. <laughs> a rod which is mentioned in this passage is um, located about 17 miles south of uh, Hebron. And uh, Hebron, as you see, is, is, is mentioned here. So it's, it's right about down in, right about down in here, opposite the southern end of the, of the Dead Sea. And it's out in the middle of just kind of sl uh, gently rolling country and just as barren as can be. And this was a Canaanite city. Uh, the king of Arad was uh, in control there. In verse 17, we read that the men of Judah accompanied the men of Simeon in marking the southeastern border of their territory. Now, the exact location of Horma is uncertain, but from the references we have, it was probably down in here somewhere. Here's Edom over here, where, Esau's, where, where Esau and his clan had come to control uh, the territory down in this region here. And, and so it was probably over fairly close to that border towards the south, where Horma was located. Now, we believe that, not only from this passage, but because Horma played a major role in the history of Israel considerably earlier than this. And you may not remember it, but uh, let's go back to the book of Numbers. like to read at the, in the 14th chapter of the book of Numbers. Because Horma was the site of Israel's first defeat at the hand of the Canaanites and its first victory over the Canaanites. And the king of Arad played a role then as he does now in this passage. Israel has been brought up to the border of Canaan. Israel has sent spies into the land and they have come back. And two of the spies says, yes, we can do it. And we know those were Joshua and Caleb. Ten of the spies said, no way, there are giants in the land. Their walls are high and fortified and we are not a warrior people. We can never conquer this place. And so God says, you're going to wander in the wilderness. You're not going up. And Israel said, oh, we blew it. <laughs> Let's go, guys. We're going to go do it anyway. And we read in verse 44 of chapter 14. But they went up heedlessly to the ridge of the hill country. Neither the ark of the covenant of the Lord nor Moses left the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and struck them and beat them down as far as Hormah. Now go to the 21st chapter. Begin with the first verse of the 21st chapter of Numbers. When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming up by the way of the Atharim, that means spies, then he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, If thou wilt indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord heard the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them and their cities. Thus the name of the place was called Horma, which means ruin or destruction. A, a thing offered is what it really means. A thing offered to God to be burned up like a burnt offering. Obviously, the Canaanites had recaptured the site since this early event, which occurred before the wilderness wandering or at the beginning of the wilderness wandering. This event occurred that we just now read. Now they're coming back to it after the conquest is over. So we're talking about possibly 50 years or more later that Israel is now coming back to this same site. It had been rebuilt and reoccupied by the Canaanites. They named it Zephath. 
And so it was a great delight. Can you imagine the delight of the men of Simeon and Judah to recapture this city and to give it back its old name and say, this is what it's called? Because this is what we called it 50 years ago, because it was our first victory in Canaan, and this is what it will continue to be called. Verse 8, as we back, back in uh, Judges now, uh, chapter 1. Verse 8, we, we just read a little bit ago about the capture of Jerusalem, and yet we know from the 21st verse that the Jebusites lived in Jerusalem and did so to this day. So you put 8 and 21 together, and, and you know that whatever the tribe of Judah did to Jerusalem, it was momentary. Okay? Well, as you read down now in this um, passage to uh, the latter part here where we read in verse 18 that Judah took Gaza with its territory, Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. Now the Lord was with Judah and they took possession of the hill country, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had iron chariots. We are looking at another Jerusalem thing here. They captured Gaza, they captured Ashkelon, and they captured Ekron. Now those, you, you see on this particular map, you see the name Philistia over here. Philistia was the land into which the sea peoples, after they rebounded from their attack on Egypt, settled. These sea peoples eventually became known as the Philistines. And, and the Philistines had established a league of cities here, very strongly fortified, powerful cities, three of which are named in this passage, Gath, Ashkelon, and Ekron. <clears throat> or Gaza is mentioned in this passage. Uh, Gath is another one, and Ashdod is another one which are not mentioned in this passage. The Philistines were a people uh, with whom Israel is going to have a great deal of difficulty. And on into Samuel and Kings, you find problems with the Philistines. Why? Because they did not permanently destroy them. We read in this passage here that they took Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. But we discovered that that was a momentary conquest. They didn't hold the land. The human reason is explained in this passage. Iron was first used on some scale in the Near East about 2000 BC. Iron eventually became not exactly a monopoly uh, of the Hittites, but largely controlled, iron manufacture was largely controlled by the Hittites. And uh, they maintained uh, almost like a monopoly down until about the 14th century. Now, the Israelites have come out of Bronze Age Egypt. They are a Bronze Age people. Their weapons and tools are bronze. They are not an Iron Age people. And so now they have been brought in contact with an Iron Age people. The Philistines are an Iron Age people. They have acquired iron technology possibly before they ever left Asia Minor or wherever it was they came from before they made their attack on Egypt long before Israel came into Canaan. And of course, if you have a bronze sword and the other guy has an iron sword, you're at a disadvantage with your bronze sword, most likely. The only time Israel had seriously faced Iron Age people was when they fought at Hatzor, Jabin, king of Hatzor in the Northern Confederation, and then now with the Philistines. But if you remember, 
when Joshua took his army against Jabin and the northern confederacy, and it said they had all these iron chariots, and, and that was a great concern, that Israel overthrew that northern confederacy in the strength of God. So why is it now that they capture these cities but only hold them momentarily? It says because the, verse 19, they could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley or the Shephelah because they had iron chariots. Well, they had faced iron chariots before and they had overwhelmed them. So what's the big deal? The big deal is they didn't trust God for the victory. Is it possible for a Bronze Age people to defeat an Iron Age people? Absolutely. All you have to do is go to the story of David and Goliath. We all know it if we've been in Sunday school from, from a child. David was actually functioning as a Stone Age young man, right? He had a sling, and he was slinging stones. That's a Stone Age weapon against Goliath, who was a Philistine, who was an Iron Age warrior with spears and swords and armor made out of iron. I mean, it should have been no contest, right? But David went in the power of the Lord and faith in God, and as a result, the great giant with all his iron equipment was, was just a big pile of rust as far as David was concerned. David knocked him off in the power of God. Could, have, could Israel have eliminated Philistia at this time? Absolutely. Absolutely. Just as they could have eliminated Phoenicia. And Phoenicia would never have gone on to become the great maritime power that it became in the following millennium had Israel fulfilled what God had commanded them to do. But because they did not... The Philistines will be a big pain to Israel for hundreds of years subsequently, and the, and the Phoenicians will go on to become a great power in the Mediterranean world, a great pagan power. Let me uh, turn to a New Testament passage in closing here. Matthew chapter 17, reading at verse 14, Matthew 17, 14. And when they came to the multitude, a man came up to him, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and is very ill. For often he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And they brought him to your disciples and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, O unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him and the demon came out of him and the boy was cured at once. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why couldn't we cast him out? And Jesus said to them, Because of the littleness of your faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it shall move, and nothing shall be impossible to you. Had Israel had the faith that God had commanded that they have and that they had walked in obedience, they would have conquered Philistia. They would have held Gaza and Ashkelon and Ekron. They would have captured Gash, Gath and Ashdod, and the Philistines would have been eliminated. Of course, that would take a lot of excitement out of the book of Judges and, and on into Samuel. And there would never have been a David and Goliath story, uh, which, of course, would be tragic. But nevertheless, what that tells us is, even in disobedience, God will glorify himself sometime later through those very ones who exist because of his people's disobedience. God will be glorified one way or the other. Well, let me just say then in uh, highlight again that verse 21, 
uh, tells us again that the Benjamites, Benjaminites, could not capture Jerusalem either. And the Jebusites remained in, in the land which had been, by the way, Jerusalem was allotted to Benjamin, but would eventually be in Judah. And it would remain in the hands of Jebusite to the days in which the book of Judges was written, which was about the time of the reign of King Saul. Well, next week, we'll, we'll look at the rest of the uh, first chapter, and there's a very fascinating event involving the city of Bethel that we'll uh, look at and, and move on.